There you go. Rash. Head of man. First. Stop. Beginning. Look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decree. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Good stuff there. Resh. And let me tell Sergio that we he says we're live, so we're good to go there. Thank you. And let's see. We got... Uh, I don't think I wrote down any of the prayer requests this week. I know I didn't. Um, no, I just, oh, wow, what a busy week. Holy shamoli. Um, but what we will do, what we will do is we'll get this. I know the camera's going to go off for a second, but that's all right. Okay, we're going to read this week in Christian history before we have a prayer. And today is, uh, what is it, the 9th, 10th, 11th? to 11th. 11th. Okay, July 11th. Man, I'm just bushed. Let's see here. July 11th in Tianjin, China. In 1902, a baby was born to Scottish missionaries James and Marie Liddell. They named him Eric. I know this story. When Eric was four, his father read in the newspaper how a Scotsman, Wyndham Halswell, had won second place in the 400-meter race in the Olympics, the first Scot ever to win an Olympic medal in track. When his father tried to explain this to Eric and his older brother, Eric asked whether that meant no Scotsman had ever finished first. The answer was yes. Eric's parents took him and his older brother to a boarding school for sons of missionaries in England, and they returned to China. At school, both boys excelled in rugby, cricket, and track. Eric set a school record of 10.2 seconds in the 100-meter dash. Eric attended the University of Edinburgh, where he continued to excel in track. He quickly emerged as the fastest sprinter in Scotland and became a national hero. In college, his older brother was active with other Christian college students and holding evangelistic meetings throughout Scotland. When Eric was invited to speak at one of these rallies in 1923, he accepted. The next morning, every newspaper in Scotland announced that Eric Liddell had preached at an evangelistic service. The experience stirred Eric's soul. It gave him a desire to share the gospel with whomever would listen. Over the next two years, he spoke to thousands throughout the British Isles, men and women who came to hear the famous athlete, but who returned to hear his message of salvation. Yet newspapers questioned Eric's commitment to running since he was spending so much time preaching. The Olympics were to be held in Paris in 1924, and the hopes of England were now pinned on the young Scott as the nation's champion sprinter. Eric's best event was the 100-meter dash, but when the schedule for the Olympics races was published, the first heats for the 100 meters were on a Sunday. Eric held the conviction that he was never to race on Sunday and refused to do so. The English Olympic Committee tried to have the date for the first heats changed, but to no avail. As a result, Eric was entered into the 200 and 400 meter races, events in which he was not at all as dominant as the 100 meters. The British press attacked him mercilessly, a traitor to Scottish sporting and to all that Wyndham Halswell stood for, announced one newspaper. On the Sunday of the 100-meter trial in Paris, Eric preached in the Scots Kirk, the Scottish Presbyterian Church in Paris. 
In the 100-meter trials, Harold, Harold Abrams was the one English sprinter to qualify for the finals the next day. Harold Abrams won the 100-meter race, the first British runner to win a gold medal in the Olympics. Eric saw that this was just part of God's plan. On Wednesday, Eric finished second in the 200-meter dash, the first Scot ever to win a medal in the 200 meters, but there was still one race to go. Eric qualified on Thursday for the 400-meter finals, but he was far from being the favorite. The finals were held on Friday, July 11, 1924. As he prepared to go to the stadium, the team Musser handed Eric a small folded piece of paper. It read, he that honors me, I will honor, quoting 1 Samuel 2.30. Eric Liddell won the 400-meter race, setting a new world record of 47.6 seconds. He was the first Scot to win Olympic gold in track. The next year, Eric Liddell returned to China on a missionary, as a missionary, and during World War II died in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Chariots of Fire, the movie about his athletic career, won the Academy Award in 1981. There you go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful uh, chance of coming to your uh, word and to studying it and to sharing in it. And we're so happy that there are people that are faithful in adhering to the precepts of the word and uh, they hold to their convictions. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for those who are uh, attending right now or that'll see this later and we hope that they're well and blessed but if they're not that you would search them out and check out their hearts check out their lives check out their finances and if anything is lacking that you would fill it up for them and lord we certainly love you and we praise you you are so good to us and you've given us so much and we're we're uh, not being very good with that that you've given us in this nation in the past few weeks and we would pray that that would be corrected and we would turn and honor you, but uh, we leave all these things in your capable hand, and we know that here at the church, we're going to get into the book of Galatians. We thank you for the book of Galatians, and we just ask that uh, it will be handled properly, and if there's anything that is incorrect in this study, that uh, it will be corrected in the minds of the people that listen, so that nothing wrong is ever introduced into their theology. And we pray this, that you will be glorified, and we certainly pray it in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we have, uh, <clears throat> this is actually, I bought these because Charlie Missy sells them. They're the, uh, they're the uh, you know, things you put over your face so you don't spread COVID-19 or whatever, but I refuse to wear that kind of thing. So I bought these for when I'm blowing off the parking lot with my leaf blower and, you know, keeps the dust out of my mouth, makes a big difference. And then they also make a great bandana, so it's really easy instead of but tying the thing. And <laughs> oh yeah, it says um, something like "Praise the Lord." Yeah, "Praise the Lord." Says... Oh, I don't know. It says, uh, "Oh, Jesus is Lord." There you go. So that fits where your mouth is, so it looks like you're shouting out "Jesus is Lord." But like I said, I refuse to be a COVID nineteen conspirator, and so uh, uh, when I'm out and about in the world, I do not wear a mask. But like I say, when I'm working, it's good to have it because if I don't, you go home and. Your nose all day is just filled with all kinds of delightful stuff. All right, so we're now in the book of Galatians. This is, I hate to say it because, you know, I, I hate to put any book of the Bible above any other, but it is my favorite book of the Bible. I have 65 other favorites, but this is the, the favorite. It really is. I, I love the book of Galatians. It's something that uh, uh, I hope everybody will take to heart. And uh, it, it's simple. It's basic theology. And yet I've had people email me and come to completely, it's like they go into the book looking to deceive themselves. 
You know, I, they, the Hebrew roots who I'm talking about, they, they look at it, they know what it says, they know very clearly what it says, but they deny it. And so they have to twist everything that is said in the book of Galatians. And you can't. If any dolt, the stupidest person on this planet that can read, picks up this book and reads it, I'm talking about Galatians, it'll take you 15 minutes to get through it, you can come to no other conclusion than the basic text. It is a very simple book. There's deep theology in it, but the, the basic message is the law is done. Hello, Miss Garrett. We're just getting started here. Grab a seat and look pretty. Okay, so we have um, <coughs> Galatians. Oh, I'll tell you what, before you read chapter 1, verse 1, today, because I did not do an introduction to the book of Galatians when I did the commentary, so today I sat down and I wrote up a very quick one, um, and I'll read that to you first. The book of Galatians and introduction. The book of Galatians is the, anybody know what book of the Bible this is? 27th, 93rd, 93rd, 49th, anybody? No, okay. It's the 48th book of the Bible, okay? 48th, don't forget that. It is comprised of six chapters of 149 verses. It was written by, anybody? The Apostle Paul, that's correct. There is absolutely no compelling reason to assume otherwise. Attempts to deny his authorship fall flat every time. Those who question the authenticity of Paul's authorship are inevitably liberals who probably know as much about critical scholarship as they do about other weighty disciplines like rocket science and thermodynamics. The book is written to those in the region of Galatia. However, there are two views as to exactly where this is, the northern view and the southern view. What this means, where these are, and internal evidences concerning which view the Bible appears to support are way too long to go over here, and you wouldn't remember it anyway. It's, it's just complicated stuff. But if you want a full discussion of where the North or South Galatia is and which one is probably the one being referred to in the Bible, you can go to Bible.org. I looked that up, and they had a good commentary on it, Bible.org, and read their introductory comments on the book. Okay, The purpose of the letter is obvious. From a simple read through the letter, Judaizers had come into the church and had attempted to bring the believers in Galatia back under the law of Moses. I'm going to read that again in a modern context. Okay, The purpose of the letter is obvious from a simple read through the letter. Hebrew Roots Movement adherents had come into the church and had attempted to bring the believers in Galatia back under the law of Moses. It's the exact same heresy that was dispelled by Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, way back then, using Peter as an example, is the same heresy that is brought into the church today. Okay, so just remember, if you hear the words Hebrew Roots Movement, stay away from them. Okay, Paul spends much time, much of the time in the epistle arguing against this. He is adamant in his stand that there is that this is not only poison in the congregation, but it is heretical and worthy of damnation. That's Galatians 1, 6 through 8. Okay, it's right there. He says this is worthy of damnation. All right, Galatians. The author is the Apostle Paul. The date is the late 40s AD. That's the approximate anticipated date by most scholars. The theme is, anybody know the theme of the book of Galatians? We are free in Christ and therefore it is Christian liberty. Okay, the purpose. One, for Paul to defend his apostolic authority. He has to do this in order to then establish the baseline as to why the false teachers are incorrect and they're leading people astray. Two, 
to affirm the truth that salvation is by faith alone. That is it. It is by grace through faith alone, and there is nothing we can add to it. And three, to correct errors of legalism. Legalism is adding to the Bible. Liberalism is taking away or dismissing the Bible. They're both poison. They both will bring people away from a sound doctrine. Okay, and the presentation of Christ in this book is our liberty. Okay, the book of Galatians, refuting the Judaizers. This is from my college notes when I did a thematic uh, explanation of all 66 of the books of the Bible. The book of Galatians is refuting the Judaizers. The book superstructure is law versus grace. Just remember that. That's the main superstructure. The structure of the book is introduction and purpose, and then the epistle general, which is the main contents, and then he has a final greeting. That's pretty much a good breakdown of Galatians. And then the book outline is broken into six parts. One, Paul recounts authority from Christ and attested by the other apostles. Two, refuting the Judaizers and rebuking... Who does he rebuke? The apostle begins with a P, ends with Eater. Yes, the apostle Peter. That's correct. Uh, and then three, Abraham's seed by faith, freedom from the curse of the law. Four, the two covenants symbolized by the sons of the bondwoman and the son of promise. Five, casting off the yoke of bondage, which is life in the spirit. And then six, boasting in the cross alone, never in the flesh. That's a very short outline. It's not a long introduction, but I just sat down in my last five minutes before I left the house today, and I typed that up so that you would have something. If anybody wants that, email me, and I'll email it to you because it is not in my notes on the PDF. Anyway, here we go. Um, we're in chapter 1, verse 1 of Galatians. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ, the God, the Father, who raised him from the dead. Okay, yours says by Jesus Christ. This one says through Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. In this case, because it says Jesus Christ and God the Father, it might be better saying actually the way they have it by because it's coming from both of them. If it said God the Father first, then you could say through Jesus because he's the mediator between the two. But um, I, I don't know what the, uh, I may have it written down here, but I do not know what preposition it uses. And so if it's written here, we'll know. But that one says by as well. Okay, um, here we go. The book of Galatians. And I've already said this, it's a little bit of a repeat because uh, I did not do, as I said, an introduction, but uh, the book of Galatians contains, does anybody remember how many verses I told you it contained? 149. Hey, good job. 149 verses of immensely important doctrine. It is a book which, you all right? Oh, she's, what are you doing over there? Okay. Uh, I got somebody over here that's disturbing the classroom. One more chance and you're out the door. Um, it is a book which every Christian, and I say this to people, when people ask me, what should I do? You know, I'm new in Christ, or, you know, I, I've never really read the Bible, and I want to know about the Bible. I will tell them the first thing they should do. Do you know the Gospels? Well, I've read them. Okay, pick one of them, and I give them a quick synopsis of the Gospels, and I say, you know, and 
usually I'll recommend people to read Luke because it's just, to me, it's exciting. Some people like other ones. And then I said, but if you want something completely different, read the book of John. Okay, so that's to get a foundation of what's going on in the life of Jesus. And then I say, what I would like you to do next is to read the book of Romans and read it eight or 10 or 12 times. Keep reading it and reading it because it takes a while to understand his terminology and how he weaves things together. Read the book of Romans again and again and again and again. Just read it. And then I say after that, and this may be surprising, but I say go to the book of Hebrews and now do the same with that. Okay. None of these are long. I mean, the gospels are longer, but if you read Romans and you just read it, it takes you what, 15, 20 minutes. It's not a long book. You just read it and read it eight or nine times. You're going to get an understanding of what is called the constitution of Christianity. You're going to understand what is going on in the church and in your salvation and all of those things that we talked about. Then go to the book of Hebrews and do the same. And the reason why, even if you've never read the Old Testament, you will understand that the Old Testament symbolism is fulfilled in Christ. And all of the things that Christ has done are, is reflected in the Old Testament. And that'll, one, give you a grounding in the Old Testament without ever going to the Old Testament. And hopefully, two, it will have you go back to the Old Testament and say, I want to read this whole book. But the next thing people do when they ask me is, what should I read after this? I always say go to Galatians and read it and read it and read it. Never stop reading the book of Galatians because it will keep you from so many attacks from other angles. People coming in and saying, well, you need to do this or you shouldn't do that or blah, 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 blah. You know how people are. And every denomination's got its own little pet peeves. Add this in here. Take that out there. Do this and do that. Read the book of Galatians until you can't read it anymore. And then close your eyes, take a breath and read it again. Okay. It will save you from so many heresies. If you just know the book of Galatians, you've got a foundation in Romans. You've got a understanding of something unique in Hebrews. And now you have something that will keep you from getting put on the wrong path by reading Galatians. Because if Paul is going, is willing to go against the apostle Peter face to face in front of a whole congregation of people, you know that he is giving you information that will keep even another apostle from going astray or from leading other people astray. It is that important, and it is just such a delight to read this book. It is such a delight. We're gonna, it's not going to take long to get through it. 149 verses, we'll, we may be done tonight if I don't shut up, but um, we'll, uh, we'll get started. Um, let's see here. Um, it's a book every Christian should read and take to heart, understanding that Paul's words are doctrine for this Gentile-led church age. I had somebody arguing with me about Matthew 23. Jesus never speaks about the rapture in Matthew 23 and 24. And of course he didn't, because he wasn't speaking to the church. And it's like eyes glazed over, completely glazed over. He's not speaking to the church about the church at all until after he's crucified. He is talking to Israel under the law about the fulfillment of the law. And if you can't get that distinction, you're going to have immediate errors in almost every discipline of your theology. Ecclesiology, he's speaking about the law and the people under the law. And then all of a sudden he's speaking about the church, Paul in the book of Galatians or Romans or whatever. So you got your ecclesiology wrong. Sin, which is hamartiology, Jesus says this and he's referring to an issue under the law. And then Paul says this, and he's referring to freedom in Christ, and now you've got a contradiction in your theology, a real contradiction. A perfect example, I use it all the time because it's easy for my small brain to remember, is when uh, Jesus says to the people, 
pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Son of Man. And so you sit there and you go, I got to pray about that every single night. And I've got to, maybe I'm not worthy. Maybe I did something to upset Jesus. And then what does Paul say? You are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee. You can't lose it on and on and on. You've got a real problem with your theology because you have taken one dispensation and another dispensation and you put them together. Okay. That is a problem. Paul's letters in particular are doctrine for the church age. Paul. That's why it begins with Romans right after the book of Acts, and it goes all the way through to the book of last look. Begins with P, ends with Philemon. That's right, Philemon. Okay, so there you go. It goes from Paul to Philemon, 13 epistles. Hebrews is written by Paul. I know it's not signed, and I know people will disagree with that, and we'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews, but that is a 14th epistle by Paul, which shows that it is also pertinent not only to the Jews, but to the church but it's after the Pauline letters, those 13 signed by Paul. And because of that, we can infer that it is directed mainly to the Jews of the end times. Same thing with James, same thing with Peter, and then John is a little bit different. It applies in a general sense, just as the Gospel of John does. And so everything has structure and harmony, but the main body of literature that we should be adhering to for the church age, and we will have no doctrinal problems if we do, is the letters of Paul. Would you open the door for her? She needs help. I've got a, a, a lady with a big box of mangoes for you. So please, before you go home today, take some mangoes. She's, uh, look at that. Oh my gosh. You shouldn't, you're going to hurt yourself doing that. Anyway, come on in, grab a seat. And then uh, if, before you leave, if you want some mangoes and your sister, you tell her because right now they won't last long. Okay. She got to get over here. Okay, here we go. Back to the uh, class, sorry about the mango interruption. Understanding that Paul's words are doctrine for this Gentile-led church age. He will point out what is heresy and thus what constitutes a false gospel, okay? Does anybody here know the difference between bad doctrine and heresy? Bad doctrine will not keep being saved. That's right. It will not keep another person from being saved. If I teach bad doctrine, you are going to be in bondage. You're going to be worried about this and that. You may think you can lose your salvation. You can, you know, you might uh, miss the rapture. No, you're not going to miss the rapture, but you will think that you are mid or post-trib rapture or whatever. That's bad doctrine. That's people that just have not considered the Bible properly. Okay. It's not going to keep anybody from being saved. I have people post from time to time that all true Christians support Israel. That's bad doctrine, okay? It's not heresy, but it is bad doctrine because there are Christians for the past 2,000 years that have no idea that there would ever be an Israel again. There are people in Papua New Guinea that don't even know what an Israel is. They love Jesus. They have been saved by the blood of Christ, and they don't even know what an Israel is. They know it from the Old Testament if they've read it, but they don't even know that it's a country in the world. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It has nothing to do with doctrine in the real sense of the word. It's something that we should do. We should support Israel, and I'll talk about that on Saturday or Sunday during the Prophecy Update, and I talk about it each week during the sermon, why we should support Israel. But that's just bad doctrine. It's not going to keep anybody from being saved. A heresy will keep the next person from being saved. And I say the next person because you can teach heresy and be a saved person. You come to Christ and you say, oh, I love Jesus. And all of a sudden somebody says that there is no such thing as the Trinity. Hey, you're already saved. But now you are going to tell somebody, well, there's not really a Trinity and that's not true. And they will never come to a saving knowledge of 
God in Jesus Christ because they're saying that he's not the divine son of God. That person didn't need to know that in order to be saved. But if he is taught in advance that it is not true, then he will not be saved because he has believed in a false Jesus and thus a false gospel. You see the logic? A heretic can be a saved person. But when a heretic teaches heresy, the next person will not be saved. That's why we have to be extremely careful with teaching one proper doctrine and never getting into devolving into heresy, okay? And yet, his words are almost entirely, Paul's words are almost entirely overlooked by a vast swath of misled and misguided people in the world today. In particular, Paul will speak against Judaizers, okay? A Judaizer, all that means is it's a Jewish person back in the time of Jesus and after Jesus during the apostolic age, and these people clung to the law of Moses. And they would go in, you'll see it in the book of uh, uh, Acts, okay? It's what precipitated the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. You need to be circumcised and observe the law of Moses in order to be saved. And so they had this giant thing talking about that. And it was very clear, the edict from them in Acts chapter 15 said that is not correct. We've had this bondage, this yoke of bondage on us all along since the day that Moses received the law. When he calls it a yoke of bondage, he's not saying that they want it anymore. He's saying that this is something that has kept us in bondage. Who wants to be in bondage? We're taught in the New Testament that we have freedom in Christ, right? So even in Acts, you can very clearly understand that the law is done. Okay, even though the book of Acts is a descriptive account of what occurred, there are hints of it. It is done. Paul's letters come in and confirm that. A Judaizer is a Jew that comes in, or a person that wants to be a Jew, and he goes and tells everybody, you need to be circumcised, you've got to stop eating ham and bacon and all that good stuff, and you've got to do this and that and one thing and another. And that's, we'll be talking about that in the sermon on Sunday. Um, for whatever reason, we may call upon him. Deuteronomy 4, 2 through 7. It's great verses. We'll talk about it there, but the establishment of that is right here in the book of Galatians, where Paul refutes these people that are trying to reintroduce that there. Okay, Judaizers, these are those people who come in into Christian circles and demand that the law of Moses is binding today and that it must be observed in part or in whole. As a benchmark for this, Paul will use the practice of circumcision that's exactly right he is going to beat circumcision over their heads until he can't beat it anymore and then he is going to say go ahead and let them cut themselves all the way off okay instead of just circumcising he says let them emasculate themselves because if they want to show how holy they are let them just keep on cutting all right that's not me making a joke that's paul saying that in this epistle okay uh, as a benchmark for this paul will use the practice of circumcision he will argue that if a Christian allows himself, and I'm talking about a person that has come to Christ, this person has come to Christ, and now he says, oh, I need to go do something in order to please God and be saved, when he's already come to Christ. If a person will allow himself to be circumcised, meaning implicitly as a means of obtaining God's favor, that person has set aside the grace of God and is bound to the entire law. It is a self-condemning act. Now, if a person is saved, they're saved. But they have cut them off from Christ, and they have, now they have alienated themselves from any grace at all. They have now put themselves in a position where they just have to pursue the law and pursue the law, and it's like a punishment. Eventually, hopefully, they'll wake up and they'll come to Christ. They'll say, gee, I was wrong. I don't need to do these things, and I can please God by simple faith. But when a person goes to one step into the law, 
they have to go every single step into the law of Moses. Go read Leviticus, what is it, 13 maybe. That's uh, leprosy issues. It goes on and on and on and on. I don't care who you are in this world today. If you have ever had a boil on your skin or something oozing out of your body or any of those type of things, you have not obeyed the law of Moses and you're not going to do it when it happens to you tomorrow. You get a boil on your head, okay? But that's what's required. You're required to be separate from all of the congregation. You're required to sit out there and unclean, unclean, and tell people not to come near you and do all the... And then guess what? After you are clean, you've got to go down to Jerusalem. Oops, you can't do that because they don't have a temple and sacrifices, and you've got to sacrifice to the Lord for your sins, okay? You've got yourself in such a bind when you say, I am going to show God how good I am by stopping eating pork or how good I am by getting circumcised. You are cutting yourself off from the Lord. That is what Paul is going to tell us. And I'm excited about this because it makes me angry to see people doing this in the world today. I mean, I get, I get angry about it. I tell you, I got angry today. I told Jim about this and you're going to laugh, but we'll get off this for one second because I just got to tell somebody. I was at the bank today and uh, I was the only person in the bank at the time. I was at the teller doing what I do every time I go to the bank, talking and, you know, or just having a good day. And a guy comes walking in with his face mask on and a welder's mask over his head because he doesn't want to get COVID-19. And so uh, he walks right up and he starts telling them. He points at me, says, that guy's not allowed in here. Get him out of here. He's... And I'm like, I, I was letting him go for a while. And finally, he, I turned around. I was so annoyed at this guy. And I said, listen, I am not required to wear a stupid mask. I said, if you don't like it, go out that door and get out of here. And then I said, and you look like a fool. You look like a fool with that thing on. And then after that, I said, you must be a Democrat. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I've, I've got that off me. But I get angry about certain things in life. I was not a very good person. I won't get any rewards for that. He was wearing a mask. He had sunglasses on. He had a, a, a thing over it. Oh, the guy. But I was just... He could have been a bank robber. He could have been a bank robber. That's, that's the first thing I thought. When he walked in, I thought, I'm going to watch this guy because he might try. And then he started complaining immediately, and I realized he was just crazy. But I will get no rewards for today's actions. I understand that. I should not have said what I said, but I had really lost it by that time. He was just, oh, no, no rewards for Charlie Garrett for his trip to the bank. But maybe no demerits, according to my mom. Okay, we got to get back into the book. Um, uh, let's see here. It's a self-condemning act. Though circumcision is the benchmark, okay, that's the benchmark that Paul uses in the book of Galatians, it can be equated to any precept in the law, dietary restrictions, Sabbath observances, and so on. Let us pay special heed to his words because they are the very words of God revealed through his designated apostle. Now, having said Sabbath observances, I want to make a distinction because we just read something yeah, about Eric nice. Liddell. He wanted to honor the Lord, and he wanted to do so by not uh, participating in sporting events on a Sunday. That is his right to do that. I will tell you something right now that maybe some of you don't know. Probably most people here do, but you may if you're watching this later, is that Sunday is not a Sabbath day. When you go to church on Sunday and you say, I'm having my Sabbath day of worship, you are making an error, a category mistake, because the category is Saturday. Saturday is the last day of the week. That goes right back to Genesis 1. Okay, there are six days in the week the Lord created on uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then he rested on Saturday. 
and that is the Sabbath. And there is no other Sabbath that you will find. Okay, now there are Sabbath observances in the Old Testament, like the Day of Atonement is a Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of Sabbaths, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Sabbath day is only a Saturday, okay? This guy wanted to honor the Lord. Where is it said that that is okay for him to have that stand? Paul says it in the book of, begins with, yes, Romans. What chapter? Okay, it's in chapter, begins with one and ends with four, okay? Yes, 14. That's very good. Okay, I'm going to take you there very quickly so you can see, because I just said Sabbath observances, and I want you to understand that what that man did was not inappropriate. Here it is, 14.6, he who observes the day, speaking about whatever day of the week, okay? Oh, let me go back to five. One person esteems one day above another. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, okay? Another esteems every day alike. Charlie Garrett works seven days a week. I get up at, I actually, I get up before four, and I start work every day at four o'clock. Every day. That's my, I do it every day. I've done it for many, many years. I've taken three days off in the past eight years, and actually four, but two of them were flying to and from Israel, which is much worse than working. It was punishment. So the two days in Israel, I didn't get much sleep there, but that's the only time I've really taken off. I've taken off parts of days when people come to visit and etc. but I'm up at four. I work until after dinner, almost every day of the week. Okay. So seven days a week. And that's me. And Paul says, that's okay. Okay, the reason why I'm telling you this is because people will beat a guilt trip into your head about you have to take off Sunday. You have to take off. Paul says, one person esteems one day above the another, like Eric Liddell did. Another esteems every day alike. Each Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. Eric Liddell observed Sunday to the Lord, and he says, I'm not going to violate this even for fame. Okay? And he who does not observe the day, Charlie Garrett, to the Lord, he does not observe it. Every day to me is a day of the Lord. Every day. That's all I'm doing all day is answering Bible questions, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm helping people with Bible problems, and I preach on Sunday, and every day is the same, okay? I do other things, but that is my commitment, is to wear myself out for the Lord. Some people want to do it, some people don't. That's fine. He who eats eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks. What that's talking about is somebody that doesn't want to eat pork. I don't want to eat pork. I'm raised as a Jew. It's been my culture. I don't eat pork, and so I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it to the Lord. What's the difference between him and what we're going to talk about in Galatians? In Galatians, the people are coming in and telling them, you must not eat pork, because if you do, you're not going to be saved. That is a universe of difference. Somebody says, I don't want to eat pork because it's not healthy. I don't want to eat pork because it's greasy. I don't want to eat candy because it's too sweet and it makes me whatever, my teeth rot out, whatever, okay? I am doing it for a, my reasons. But when somebody comes in, like the Seventh-day Adventists, and says, you must observe the Sabbath, you cannot drink Pepsi. Yes, I, there are Seventh-day churches that do not allow you to drink Pepsi, okay? That is a completely different issue. It has nothing to do with anything in Scripture, and therefore it is adding to the gospel, and thus it is no gospel. Okay, that is what Paul is going to address. So I got that out of the way. I wanted you to know that because I said Sabbath, Sabbath observances, circumcision, etc. Let us pay special heed to his words because they are the very words of God revealed through his designated apostle. 
To open this marvelous book, he begins by identifying himself and then giving his qualifications for writing the letter. We just read the verse a few minutes ago, Paul, an apostle. However, the Greek contains no article. Instead, it says Paul, apostle. It is an affirmative statement that he is uniquely qualified to write the words of doctrine which follow. The term apostle is to be taken in its strictest sense. In other words, he meets the requirements of an apostle of Jesus, having been instructed by him and having witnessed him in his resurrected state. If you have not been instructed by the Lord, if you have not seen him and been commissioned by him, you are not an apostle of Jesus Christ, nor is your pastor that calls himself Apostle Jimmy. Okay? Now, having said that, I got a mosquito that's here just biting me to death. So if you see me scratching, I'm sorry. Um, the uh, One of my favorite movies, and I know this is going to sound contradictory until I explain to you why, one of my very favorite movies ever is called The Apostle. Okay? It's by Robert Duvall. Okay, if you've never seen it, I would ask you to watch it. Now, the first time that I watched The Apostle, my mother gave it to me and she says, oh, you've got to see this movie. It's so great, blah, 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 blah. And I watched it and I was literally angry at her. I was so angry at her, I told her, I said, I can't believe you wasted my time with this movie. And then I, I went to bed and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I had completely missed the purpose of the movie The Apostle. And the reason why is because I was watching it, I'm thinking she's giving me a movie that's going to give me doctrine. And she says, you got to see it because she knows I love doctrine. I love the word. I love teaching people the word. And here this guy is doing everything possible to screw up his life. He, I won't give away all the things he does, but he literally screws up everything in his life. And he, he acts so unchristian, even though he loves Jesus. He literally loves him. It's all he thinks about. It's all he talks about. It's all he does. And yet he's like Charlie Garrett. He goes over to the bank and calls somebody a Democrat. Okay. It's the same type of attitude. And I'm thinking doctrine when I should be thinking love of the Lord. And when you watch that movie, I mean, at the very end, he is in the most dire circumstances you will ever see a person in. And yet he is there. I won't give away what it is. He is there singing about Jesus, and he's got men all around him singing about Jesus in these dire circumstances. Watch the apostle. Every time I've had something big in my life, like when I went around the U.S. to preach at all 50 capitals, the last thing I do is I watch the movie The Apostle. Be the day before I got ordained, I watched the movie The Apostle. And the reason why is I want to remember the love of the Lord that exudes out of this guy, Robert Duvall did a marvelous job. But if you're watching it for doctrine, you are watching it for entirely the wrong reason because it has no doctrine at all. He baptizes himself. I mean, it's just crazy. But the love of Jesus in that movie cannot be denied. And it gets you fired up for the Lord. And you say, I just want to go out and tell somebody about Jesus. Okay, watch it. Okay, so there you go. That is what this is speaking about. He is not an apostle. He wasn't an apostle, and yet he's calling himself an apostle in the movie. Okay, Paul is an apostle because he was commissioned by the Lord. He was sent, which apostle means sent one. He was sent by the Lord. Okay, so um, he saw him in his resurrected state. He witnessed him. In his claim as an apostle, meaning Paul, he shows that he bears the authority to make doctrinal statements which are to be accepted and adhered to. Thus, this is the word of God. When we read these words, it is the Lord working through him. He is guided by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you something. 
I know that may sound goofy to somebody that's just watching this and saying, well, I want to see what Christianity is like. And somebody told me to watch this hippie on YouTube and see about the book of Galatians. Okay. I understand that it sounds goofy when I say that the Lord is working through Paul or John. But I'm going to tell you what, if you study this book long enough and you look at the number of times certain words are said or the, the structure in which they're written or the, the patterns which are hidden in here, which haven't been seen in thousands of years, and all of a sudden, 10 or 15 years ago, somebody finds these beautiful patterns right there. They're open text. They're not hidden. They're open text patterns, and they publish a document on it, which has never been seen in human history before from a letter that's been read for 2,000 years by hundreds of millions of people. You know that this is inspired of God. The patterns continue to come out. And this book, this 149 verses, that's like writing a letter with 149 sentences. It's not that long. And yet people have been looking at this and getting wisdom from it for 2,000 years. It is inspired by God. There is so much information. What we're going to talk about in the next 149 verses won't even scratch what is in there. Because what I do when I give a commentary is I give you a verse-by-verse -verse analysis. I don't look at the global picture of the book, where some people will look at the global picture of the entire um, chapter. And then they'll tie that into the second chapter and the third and the fourth and the fifth. And they'll see the, these mega pictures instead of the minor pictures. I don't do that normally. There are times where I will. You'll see the chiasms that, like in the Old Testament. Okay. But there are people that will study this in one way. There are people that will study it in another way. And in the end, there's so much information we are going to miss that it is astonishing. Okay, I'm just going to give you the things that I know from a line-by-line -line analysis and not some of the bigger global pictures that I may even be aware of. Okay, this is just a Bible study. Okay, complex so tap tapestry. a complex tapestry. Absolutely right. And there's one thing about this complex tapestry, which I will say right now, again, I said it a few months ago. I know I said it in the Bible class that we use the word tapestry. If you pull on a thread of a tapestry, the whole thing unwinds. And when I say that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles and he is doctrine for the church age, and then some person comes along and says, that doesn't apply to me. They take a verse that they don't like out of context or they say it doesn't apply to me. They have now literally unwoven the entire tapestry because if that verse doesn't matter, none of it matters. That is how important the Bible is, is that we have to handle it very, very carefully very carefully. And we have to say, I may not understand this, but I know that Paul has said it. And so I'm going to find out what he is relaying to me. Okay. We don't want to dismiss things just because we don't like them because I'm a male or I'm a female or I don't like that. I'm a Gentile and the Jews get the preference and all that kind of stuff. You have to put that stuff aside. Okay. It is tapestry. That's a very good word for this. Okay, his claim as an apostle shows that he bears the authority to make doctrinal statements which are to be accepted and adhered to. He is the messenger of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and his words are to be taken as such. His next words are, not from men. Paul, apostle, not from men. This indicates that he was not sent by any particular body of people. Okay, if we want to send somebody from the superior word, to Uganda to visit Isaac over there, all right? And if somebody wanted to, I would save and I would make sure that you could go. We would have the church send you if possible. If it's not possible, that's great. But if it's something you want to do, I would say you are a sent person of this church to go visit Isaac. And I know he'd love it. Or Oma over in Kenya. He would love to have somebody come and visit him. I know that's true, okay? I was talking to Isaac just yesterday by email. 
And I said, I'd love to come and visit you. I said, my problem is I don't have any backup preacher. Uh, we have Will Groban, and if he can come and fill in and I can get a weekend off, and that means I could go from a Saturday until a Saturday, I could get 12 days out, I could go, that's great. But Will Groban is now preaching up at the north end of Sarasota, even though he lives in uh, Bradenton. I bet you didn't know that, but praise the Lord, because we've been praying for him. And so uh, anyway, I don't have that as a fallback right now. But I'd love to go there. But if somebody else wants to go to Isaac or uh, Oma Silas over in Kenya, that would be wonderful. We'll send them and they would be a sent person from us, from man to another receiving person. But his is not from men. This indicates that he was not sent by any particular body of people. Further, speaking of Paul, his commission was not from any human origin. His apostleship was higher than any such level. The meaning of apostle is, as I said earlier, sent one or a messenger. He was sent by Christ, and his message is that of the Lord. His words then bear far more weight than those who had come in to infect the church with their heretical doctrine. He's going to establish this. This is why he's doing this right at the beginning. He is establishing the baseline so that they understand his qualifications because the miscreants that were coming in did not bear those qualifications, and yet they, the people that he had brought to the Lord and had nurtured in the Lord, had gotten pulled away by these people. And he is now having to reestablish his authority, his ability to show them the truth by dismissing these people that had come in there. And it's very sad. You know, I mean, it's just sad that these people came to Christ and then they're swaying away. And that's why I say, please read the book of Galatians. Don't just do this study, but read it again and again and again. Okay, he was sent by Christ and his message is that of the Lord. His words then bear far more weight than those who had come in to infect the church with their heretical doctrine. Paul will exactingly define this in the coming verses. He also says, not through man. He didn't come from men and also not through man. Not only was he not commissioned by any body of men, but he was not appointed by any man. Further, no man had any part in his calling. If you go back to anybody, what chapter of Acts is Paul called? Anybody? No, it's not 13. It's right after 8, but it comes before 10. Anybody? Yes, Acts chapter 9. Very good. Let's go there really quickly. Oh, I'm going to, let me see. We're going to talk about it. We'll get down there, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 9. Hang on. Um, let's see here. Um, uh, he also says, not through man. Not only was he not commissioned by any body of men, but he was not appointed by any man. Further. No man had any part in his calling. It was solely of God. He was selected entirely by the choice of Jesus Christ for this apostolic ministry. Acts 9 shows this clearly with the words spoken by Jesus. Now, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to go, uh, instead of reading from my, my comments, I'm going to take you back to Acts chapter 9, and I'm going to take you here. Um, it, here's a good way of understanding Paul's authority. Just read all of Acts chapter 9 tonight after the study. Just go home, or if you're at home, Pull up Acts chapter 9 on your computer or in your Bible and just read it, okay? I'm not going to read the whole thing now, but it tells what is happening to him. It tells him how he was called. He's going up to Damascus. He's going to persecute the believers there, and he's going to bring some of them back to jail for trial in uh, Jerusalem. He has the authority of the high priest. And lo and behold, what happens? Right there on the road to Damascus, the Lord shows himself. He reveals himself to him. And he says, what does Jesus say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me. Was Paul persecuting Jesus? He was persecuting believers in Jesus, and therefore he was persecuting 
Jesus. We are the body of Christ. So much for losing your salvation. Okay, that is a side issue that people love to bring up. But when you are in Christ, you are in Christ. You're not going to lose that. It, you, if you can lose your salvation, Jesus can cut off his hand. Okay, he's not going to do that. You are a part of the body of Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Okay, and then it tells what happened after that. It says that he was blinded. I'm going to give just a real short picture of it so you can read it later. He's blinded. He's taken to Damascus and he sits there three days blind. Now, this is a man that has been persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ directly because he's persecuting his people. All right. He's, and it says he breathed out threats against him. It wasn't just that he was, you know, he was, he was like the Jews today that are against Jesus. They're, they're vile in their actions against Christians at times. They're angry. They're bitter. They yell at him. They, they do all kinds of things to them in Israel. Okay. And I always say, when I see one of these people doing it and somebody says, look at how bad they are, I always say, maybe that'll be the next Paul. Maybe that guy will come to Christ and be the next Paul. Okay, I'm not talking about writing scripture. I'm talking about being a witness for Christ. Anyway, so um, he's there three days blind, and he has three days to sit and think about his life. I've been under the law. I've been trying to please God through the law, and now I find out that everything that I have been taught isn't wrong, but it is fulfilled. You see, there's a difference. Everything he did was correct. He was under the law, but he rejected Christ. Everything from that point on was now wrong. And so he comes to this understanding, and finally we get to Acts chapter 9, I think it's verse 15. Yes, verse 15, where is it? But the Lord said to him, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read you. So the Lord said to him, arise, he's talking to a guy named Ananias, arise, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul, that was his name, Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. Three days he's praying. The guy is blind and he's been persecuting the church. And of course he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, as if the Lord doesn't know what he's doing, right? Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Gee, Lord, I'm trying to help you out here. You don't know what you're talking about. And what does the Lord say? But the Lord said to him, here it is, go for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias, you're wrong. He is going to do great things for me, and that he's still doing great things for the Lord 2,000 years later if we are willing and willing to allow him to teach us, okay? The Lord is teaching us through Paul important doctrinal truths. I hope that people will pay attention to it. Going on, he confirms exactly that appointment with the words, but through Jesus Christ. This is Paul again. He says, Paul, apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, okay? It was the Lord who appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and it was he who ordered Ananias, as we just saw, to lay his hands on Paul for him to receive his sight once again. The commission is solely the choice of the Lord, and therefore his words in this epistle are to be taken as the very words of God for life, doctrine, and practice. If we don't use Paul's words in that way for our life, for our doctrine, and for our practice, we are misusing the word of God. Okay? 
anything less is to ignore the one who commissioned him. Christ commissioned him. We just saw that. And so when we ignore Paul's words, we ignore Paul. And that is the point that Paul is making to the people at Galatia. Paul, apostle, not from men nor through men, but by Jesus Christ. And to finish off the verse, he notes that his authority is also from God the Father who raised him, meaning Jesus, from the dead. As God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, it then shows that his stamp of approval rests on the Son. That's why he included this in here. I am proclaiming the Son. These people that are coming in here are not doing that. They are proclaiming Moses. They are proclaiming law. They are proclaiming works. Not pleasing God the Father because the Son has already done that. Jesus Christ has pleased the Father through the law, and he died in fulfillment of the law, and he raised him from the dead. That is the point that Paul is making right here. Those people will not be raised from the dead because they're trying to earn God's favor, and they've rejected the one who did the work in the first place. As God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, then it shows that his stamp of approval rests on the Son. This is confirmed numerous times in Scripture, but Romans 1.4 one verse four states it concisely. There Paul says that Christ Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. All that we need in God is Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else. We don't need to worry about not eating this, about observing that, about worrying about seats on my talit, and if they've got a blue cord in them, we don't need to worry about any of those things. What were you going to add? COVID. COVID-19. We don't need to worry about COVID-19 either, because we got a better hope than this world. Absolutely. Okay, so, and to finish off the, oh, I said that there, Romans 1, 4, it is upon Jesus Christ that God's stamp of approval rests. This defining act of God shows that Christ was approved in his earthly ministry and he prevailed over the law of Moses. He didn't die because of the law of Moses that ah oh, he died in the law and he didn't he prevailed over it. The law of Moses he did die because of it but he prevailed over it. A lot of people died because of the law of Moses. Remember the Sabbath breaker back in the book of Numbers was it? Take him out there. Stone him to death. Okay, he died because of the law of Moses, but he did not prevail over the law of Moses. We're going to go back real quickly, just so you know what that is saying. First, I guess I'll take you, let me turn here, seeing as I got the page already up, and I'm going to take you back to John 19 first. Okay, go here first, just so you understand exactly what Paul is saying. It says in John 19, we're getting there. It's oops, already too far. Um, hang on now. Oh, yeah, wrong page. Okay, here it is, John 19, verse 30. It is almost done. He didn't say that. He said, it is finished. And then he died. It says right there, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Okay, so Paul explains that in Colossians 2. I'll take you back to verse 11, but I want to get to verse 14. In him, Jesus, you also were circumcised. That's what Paul's going to be speaking about all through the book of Galatians. If you allow yourself to be circumcised, the Lord means nothing to you. You are a debtor to the whole law because you are circumcised, not in the flesh, but in, here it is, you circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh 
So you don't need to be circumcised in the flesh because you put off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Is exactly what Paul just said in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. God approved of his son because proving it because of the resurrection. He raised him from the dead, proving that he was pleased with the work he had done in fulfillment of the law. God who raised him from the dead, verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which we all were before we came to Christ, we were all dead. We were uncircumcised in the flesh and we were definitely dead because of trespasses. He, Christ, because God approved of him and because we have received Christ, he is made alive together with him. You all, if you've called on Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, not some, not the ones in the past, and you got to worry about the ones in the future because you can lose your salvation. It doesn't say that. He has forgiven you all trespasses. And that takes you, before I go to verse 14 of Colossians 2, I'm going to take you really quickly. It is finished here in John. And then we're going to go to 2 Corinthians, which we just finished. And I'm going to take you back to verse 5, and I'm going to take uh, chapter 5 and verse 19. That is, that Christ was, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. That means past, present, and future. What that means is that you can lose your salvation if God imputes you sin, can't you? Because by sin is the knowledge of by sin comes death, right? Um, by the law is the knowledge of sin, and by sin comes death. So the wages of sin is death, and if God imputes you sin, then yes, you can lose your salvation and you can be lost, okay? But he says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, and he confirms it in Colossians 2, that God is not imputing you sin because you're not under law. So if you're not under law and you're not being imputed sin, then you explain to me how you can lose your salvation. How is it possible? It's not. It is impossible. Okay, here it is. And you being dead in your trespasses and the circumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Past, present, and future, done. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, meaning the law of Moses. He wiped it out. The stone that had the inscription by the finger of God is wiped out. The stone is a blank stone. He has wiped out the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's done. It's done. If I, I will say it again. I say this from time to time when I get angry, and I'm going to be this way all the way through the book of Galatians, is that if you are in a church or if you are watching a teacher on YouTube that you love, he's such a great teacher, but he tells you you can lose your salvation, you should never listen to that person again. He's confusing you. He is introducing a false gospel. He is introducing a false gospel because if you can lose your salvation, then it was never of grace by faith. Ever. If you have to earn keeping your salvation, it's the same thing as having to earn having your salvation. Don't listen to these people. It's just very bad theology. It, it, it's like telling a kid, don't put your hand on the stove, and they do it anyway. They learn, and they never do it again. But some people just want to keep testing it. Is it going to be hot today? Is it going to be hot today? Don't do it. 
Just don't listen to these people. It's control. They want control over you, and they're going to scare you into believing that you can lose your salvation. Okay, everybody see what he just did? I'm going to read it again. Paul, apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He put that in there for a reason. He raised him because he approved of him. And he approved of him because he had fulfilled the law and he had erased its requirements. If you want to be back under that law, by all means, go ahead. You live your life as you want. And you're going to find out in Sunday's sermon that it's not a happy place to be. If that's what you want, that's why we go through the law. You wonder why we do these sermons in Deuteronomy so we understand the grace of God in Jesus Christ, what he did for us right here. It's being explained. It's, isn't this already? It's the most marvelous book. My hair's been standing up. I'm going to be all tuckered out when I go home because of all the energy I'm expending just having my hair stand up. I love the book of Galatians because every word of it explains to you that you're free. Remember the title? Christian liberty. It's going to rain, isn't it? I love it. Oh, I can hear that thunder. It's woo. Okay. Um, bring it on. Um, let's see here. Yes. God approved of the sun. Oh, I, did I miss something? Yes. I got to go back up here again. Um, Ananias laid his hands on him to finish off the verse. He notes that God raised his son from the dead. It is upon Jesus Christ that God's stamp of approval rests. This defining act of God shows that Christ was approved in his earthly ministry and prevailed over the law of Moses, which is God's standard for the people of the world. Okay, now you can debate. Are people that not under the law going to be judged by the law? And you, obviously not. They've never had the law. How can you be judged by something that you were never under? But guess what? God's standard is the law. And Jesus fulfilled the law. Therefore, Jesus is God's standard of judgment. Whether you're under the law or not is irrelevant. What matters is that Christ is the standard by which all humanity will be judged. All humanity. He is the standard. And he is the only one that fulfilled the law of Moses. And therefore, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew under the law or a Gentile apart from the law. You are condemned by the law because Christ fulfilled the law. Everybody got that? That is the standard of our judgment as human beings. This is key to understanding Paul's authority to write this epistle. It is also key to see that his words concerning the law and all of its precepts are fulfilled in Christ on our behalf. Because of this, we are to not rely on works of the law, but hold fast to the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is what we are to do, and hold on to that alone, nothing else. Just hold on to Christ. You know, uh, Hebrews 12, 2, my favorite verse in the Bible, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Man, if you do that, you're in the sweet spot, because everything else, when you got your eyes fixed on something, that's all your, you know, your, your concentration. Hebrews 3, 1, let us fix our thoughts on Jesus. Well, guess what? If you've got your eyes on him, your thoughts are going to be on him. Your heart's going to be geared toward him. You're not going to be worried about these other side issues. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and let us read Galatians until we can't read it anymore and then take a breath and read it again. Okay, God's approval is in the Son. We accept the work of the Son and therefore our approval will also be from God the Father who will then also raise us from the dead. That's why Paul tied that in there. He's trying to get the Galatians to learn this very simple, basic theology. 
without trusting in Christ's sufficiency alone, God will not approve of us and we will stand condemned. Like I said, if somebody tells you you can lose your salvation, you are not trusting in Christ's sufficiency alone. You're not doing it because you're saying that, yeah, he saved me, but now I've got to keep adding on to the cross. That's not trusting in Christ alone. That's trusting in your good deeds and to show how to God how much better you can do it than Jesus did it. That's all that is. Okay, God will not approve of us in that attitude and we will stand condemned. This is the message that Paul will explain in this marvelous epistle. Life application. Oh, we've got 20 more minutes. Paul's words are doctrine for the church. They are to be received as such and accepted at face value. By not showing faith in what Paul writes, we are also not showing faith in the surety of the word of God or in Christ's commission of Paul, which is clearly recorded in Acts chapter 9. Be sure to pay close attention to the words which flow from Paul's pen as we evaluate them in, I said here, the months ahead because... Uh, I was typing a commentary and I knew it would take 149 days. Like I said, we may be done with Galatians tonight. But either way, just pay attention until we're done. All right? Oh, that thunder is sounding wonderful. I just, I hope it just comes dumping down on us. Oh, good. Okay. Galatians 1, verse 2. There we go. And all the brothers with me, the churches in Galatia. Okay. This one says the churches of Galatia. Same thing. Okay. Greek scholars very easily find a coldness in Paul's words here which show his immense disapproval of the situation that he must address in regard to the churches of Galatia. All right, what did he say there? He said, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Okay, first he notes all the brethren who are with me. The way this is structured and the with me all the brothers, or as the pulpit commentary translates it, and the brethren which are with me, one and all, gives an emphasis on the word all. As they say it, there is not one of those about him who does not feel the like grief and indignation as himself in reference to the news just now received. In other words, he is saying, I'm writing you this epistle, with all of these brethren, and he emphasizes the word all. It's in the emphatic position. And because of that, it is saying that all of us are really upset at what we've heard about you. Okay? Imagine that. This guy has been there. It would be like, you know, uh, Tom, church planning Tom. He goes out and he plants a church in Arcadia. And he tells them about the grace of Christ. And they're all weeping. And they love Jesus. And they're so thankful. And he gives them this great body of instruction. And he says, now, just pay attention to this. This is the basics. And I'll check on you from time to time. But don't deviate from this. And what happens? It's raining. I love it. What happens? He goes back six months later. Or he gets a letter from somebody that says, you won't believe it. The church in Galatia is, or in Arcadia has taken up with the Hebrew Roots Movement. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden, Tom, he's weeping. He's literally weeping. These people, they just love the Lord. They heard that they were saved by grace through faith, which is he's going to explain all this in here. And he hears that, and he loves these people. And now all he can do is just mourn. What are you talking about? That's the emphasis that Paul is giving here. It's not just me. All of us, we're in distress. We're in distress because of you. What are you doing? Okay? All the brethren, as they say it, 
this, I'll read it again. There is not one of those about him who does not feel the like grief and indignation as himself in reference to the news just now received. Further, it is to be noted that none of the brothers are highlighted. Remember, like other epistles, you say, Timothy is with me, or I've got, uh, you know, this guy with me, or we got these four people, and we all say hi. He doesn't do that, as he so often names them in his other letters. He gives a general blanket greeting without any additional note of personal greeting. It is as if there was a cumulative hush from the individuals because of their thorough disgust at what had transpired in the churches being addressed. Okay, if the power goes out, we'll just stop the class, okay, because we got the lightning out there and it'll be recorded over here and so I can go home and put it on the internet, but we'll hope that the power just keeps going. Anyway, the severity of this tone should be a wake-up call to every Christian concerning the issue to be discussed. Every rational thinking person who reads Galatians should say, I will hold to the gospel of grace alone, and I will reject anyone who attempts to reinsert even one precept from the law of Moses. This epistle contains the epitome of disregard for the Judaizers of the world and their corrupt attitude toward what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, before we go on, I'm going to say something about the law of Moses. And every time I say it, I get an angry email from somebody, and it doesn't matter. Okay, this is the law of Moses. It is summed up in what? What is it summed up in? It's first thing he gave them. It's summed up in the, yes, the Ten Commandments, okay? So, law of Moses is summed up in the Ten Commandments. It is the basis for the Ten Commandments, but it's not all the law of Moses. The law of Moses goes on and on and on. And then after Moses is dead, as we're going to see in Sunday's sermon, the law of Moses continues because God speaks through prophets who are speaking under the law. So it's all a part of the law of Moses, okay? It's all there. It's all part of the same revelation. It's all part of the same dispensation, all right? When the law of Moses was nailed to the cross, the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. It doesn't matter if it's what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 7, 3. I'm making that up. I have no idea what he says there. Or if it's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 5, 12. Or if it is what the Lord said in establishing the law of Moses in the first or second or third or fourth or fifth of the commandments or any of the Ten Commandments. It is one codified body of law. If God is not imputing sin to us, that means that the law is done. People make a distinction between the moral law, oh, the Ten Commandments are moral law, and then the ceremonial law, well, taking sacrifices and offerings down to Jerusalem, that's done. And they say, this is done, and then they go through line by line, they say, this is not done, this is done, this is not done. It is done. The law of Moses is done, every single bit of it. But somebody's already clicked off their computer, and so they've missed. This happened at the church one time. I was explaining this at the church, and the guy was listening, he was loving the, uh, uh, or the beach. Uh, he was loving the sermon, and I said, the law of Moses is done, including the Ten Commandments, and he grabbed his wife, and they left. He waited two more minutes. He would have gotten the good news. The good news is that the law of Moses is repeated in part in the New Testament. It says in the New Testament, you shall honor your mother and your father. Therefore, that is binding on us, but sin is not being imputed if we don't do that. We will lose rewards at the Bema Seat of Christ, okay? But Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, you are to love the Lord. That's explained all the way through the New Testament. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated substantially in the New Testament. 
okay? One of them isn't. Sabbath. The Sabbath. It's completely talked against, and yet people say, we're bound to the law of Moses, and yet they go to church on Sunday. That You talk about some convoluted thinking there. That is people, I'm talking about people that say the moral law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. They have not been abrogated. <laughs> they have been abrogated because we're not in church on Saturday. We're in church on Sunday, proving that one of the Ten Commandments is done. And if one is done, they're all done, unless they're repeated in the new as binding precepts on us. Just as everything prescriptive in Paul's epistles are, we are under those commandments. So don't get worried when I say the law is done. It is done. We still are to do those things, but if we don't, there's a difference. We're not being imputed sin. We are being judged for rewards and losses. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 11, I think, and then 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15, I think. I may be wrong on the, the verse numbers, but there you go. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. But pay attention to that right there because the law of Moses is done, okay? Moral law, civil law, there is no distinction made anywhere in Scripture concerning that. Nowhere. It has to be. It has to be. Unless That's right. Legal. Okay. There are God's laws. That's right. God does not fail. He does not, not okay. fail. These are his laws. So how did he, you know, the, the, the bypass to do that is that, okay, my son completes My son it. did so it. So therefore, the law is not on you anymore. It's on him. It is. That's so why we are free in Christ. Pushed aside. So like, you know, so we're, we're not under that. No. Nope. God still is... Is almighty and he still has his law. Yep. But it's fulfilled in in his yeah, yeah. son. And the cross is just where he hung it. That's right. But the, the perfection but of We the are in Christ and therefore we have fulfilled right. the law in yeah. Christ. That's that's right. Okay. So this epitome, this epistle contains the epitome of disregard for the Judaizers of the world and their corrupt attitude towards what Christ has done for us. Whoever these brethren are is unknown and actually unimportant to the issue at hand. The lack of mentioning them is sufficient as a rebuke to the Galatians. All that matters to Paul is that there is a unified voice, all my brethren, among whom them, among them concerning what must be addressed. All of them agree what Paul is saying. If we are to speculate, possibly those in Acts 20 verse 4 are there with him. The record of Acts in regards to the placement of where Paul is now cannot be determined with precision. But I'll take you to Acts 20, verse 4, and we'll read that just so you can see that this may be, it may be who he's talking about. Who knows? And so Pater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Okay, that may be who is with Paul while he's writing this. It's a good group of people, and every one of them, if it is them, is literally abhorred at what they have heard, the news that they have received. Okay, along with not naming the brothers with him, another note of censure can be inferred. Paul normally opens his letters with a note of commendation and thanks for the faith of the believers. Well, your faith is great. I'm so happy you're growing in the word and in the knowledge of the Lord. Doesn't happen. Even the dysfunctional church at Corinth was given such a hearty note of approval. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, he notes those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Two verses later, he gives thanks concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. So he's, he's applauding them. Even though they're dysfunctional, he spends the next how many chapters telling them how dysfunctional they are, he gives them a commendation. He gives none to the people in Galatia. Once again, 
Tom, the church planner, goes out and he hears that they have gone to the Hebrew Roots Movement. Who would applaud them in anything? Literally in nothing. They have set aside grace, and if you have set aside grace, there is nothing left to compliment. Nothing. Okay? That's it. There is no such note to the Galatians. His coming comments in verses 3 and 4 don't carry nearly the same noteworthy tone. They are simply a hopeful blessing towards them, which he does give them a blessing, but even the blessing is a bit different. In Corinth, there was transgression which needed to be dealt with. That is true. But what has happened in Galatia is far worse and deals with heresy, which can only lead to an apostate church. That's the only thing that can happen here. There is no ability to recover if they continue on the path they are on. It will lead to a church that is completely apostate. As Charles Ellicott notes, think of any major denomination in America today, the Episcopals, the half of the Presbyterians and the other half is going quickly. They, they get off of grace, they get onto a social gospel, and they're done. They have, left the, they have left the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They say that they're under the grace, just like every church out there does, but they're not, okay? As Charles Ellicott notes, the Corinthians had failed in the practical application of Christian principles. The Galatians, so far as they listened to their Judaism teachers, could hardly be said to have Christian principles at all. The apostle is angry with them with a righteous indignation, and his anger is seen in the naked severity of this address. You can see it all over Paul's words. He is so upset at these people, and not because he doesn't love them, because if he didn't, he wouldn't be writing them the letter, and he wouldn't be begging them. He wouldn't be begging them. When he says, if when I was there, you would have pulled out your eyes and given them to me. What has happened to you, he says. We'll get to that soon enough. He's begging them to understand that they have fallen so far that they don't even know what he had told them anymore. You see how angry I am? I'm not angry. I'm just, I'm animated because I've seen this happen to so many people in my life. People that have just walked away from the Lord into these crazy ideologies and it's harmful. It's harmful to them. It's harmful to the families. They sit in churches where there's legalism. Some of them wear bonnets on their head and they sit there and they're afraid to stand up and praise the Lord. It's okay. Where these Judaizers came from is not known. All that is known is that they have come and they have infected more than just a single church. Hence, the letter being addressed to all of the churches in Galatia. They went around and they just infected everybody. It seems that someone or some group intentionally followed behind Paul's ministry and purposefully infected each church with their same sour doctrine. He has a special curse coming for such people. His pen will hold nothing back as he condemns them and anyone else who would so twist and abuse the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's going to hear it. It's going to be probably next week. We're not going to be able to finish the whole book today, and we're not even finishing the first chapter. But I can tell you that he is not going to hold anything back. The words he uses are very precise. They're very direct, and they are like a sword that just cuts right through them. Okay, we're not going to have time for a third verse, so we're going to finish up here. Life application. Context is king when it comes to biblical interpretation. If something is taken out of its intended context and reinserted where it does not belong, then only bad doctrine or even heresy will result. One must always identify the points related to proper context before solidifying sound doctrine. Okay, you've got to get the basics down. You've got to understand them. You've got to be able to hold fast to them. You've got to say, I know that what I am hearing is not right. I may not be able to answer why. Uh, 
I may not be able to explain to them what they're saying is wrong, but I know that I shouldn't be listening to them. And I know that I am going to check it out with somebody that does know. I'm going to keep going until I get the answer because something smells fishy here, right? When you're watching TV and, you know, you get people that are on TV and, well, they're on TV, they must be great preachers, right? Because they're on TV, they must be well-recognized and you, you get pulled away by these people. Because some of them, all they care about is your money in their pocket, or all they care about is telling you something that will take you so far away from Jesus Christ that you don't even know who he is anymore when they're done with you, okay? And they're all over. They're all over the place, okay? We'll talk about that in the Prophecy Update as well this weekend, all right? We just need to be very careful to always read this word. That's what I would ask everybody here today is if you don't know Romans, go and read Romans eight or nine times and then go to the book of Hebrews and read it eight or nine times. The first time you're not even going to know what you're reading. Your mind is wandering. You don't understand the terminology and you have to get used to the style. And then after that, read this book of Galatians and read it and read it and read it. And then when you're tired of reading it, take a breath and read it again. Okay. Read it every week before we come to this study. How about that? Just commit to reading. It's only 15 minutes is going to take you. Six chapters, 149 verses. You're going to watch a lot more TV this week than is necessary. While we're in the book of Galatians, commit to yourself. On Wednesday night or Thursday morning, I am going to read Galatians before Charlie has class on Thursday at five o'clock. Would you commit to that, anybody? Okay, I see some heads nodding here, and I hope that there's some nodding out there too. Please do that because you are going to be trained by me, and I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong and you've read it already, then you're going to say something doesn't sound right about that, and I'm going to check it out. Okay, if you don't know this book, I'm the only source you have for the instruction that you're going to get, and that is a sad place to be. It's a sad place for anybody if you don't know the Word of God. Let's go to learn prayer. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this wonderful rain. Oh, it's just wonderful. Thank you so much. And we uh, are appreciative of the uh, green, green grass we've been getting and all the flowers and the mangoes that are blooming and how good you are to us, Lord God. Thank you for the great, great treasure that we have in the book of Galatians. The fruit there is sweeter than any fruit we'll ever eat in our life. And it is from the, the beautiful source of life itself, from the hand of the, from the word of the Lord, through the hand of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we are so thankful for it. Help us to feed on it daily and to just cherish it all the days of our life. May it be so and may it be to your glory. Amen. Amen. So he wrote this letter before he did Corinthians. Yes, this is an older letter. That's correct. Um, okay, that is their break, okay? They went, is that...